There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning. Since we're covering 21 verses today, I'm not going to read them all. Uh, but I do want you guys to pray with me. Lord, change us. That's what we need more than anything. We want to be more like you. In those ways, Lord, when, where we're not like you, I pray you would reveal that to us and by your Holy Spirit, begin to work on us to want that in our lives. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Consider this story told by Bernard Brown, the president of Kennestone Regional Health Care System in the state of Georgia. Brown once worked in a hospital where a patient knocked over a cup of water which spilled on the floor beside the patient's bed. The patient was afraid that he might slip on the water when he got out of the bed, so he asked a nurse's aide to please mop it up. Now, the patient didn't know it, but the hospital had a policy that small spills were the responsibility of the nurse's aides, while the larger spills were to be mopped up by the hospital's housekeeping group. Well, the nurse's aide decided the spill was a, a large one, and so she called the housekeeping department. A housekeeper arrived, and she declared the spill to be a small one. Believe it or not, an argument followed. It's not my responsibility, said the nurse's aide, because it's a large puddle. The housekeeper did not agree. Well, it's not mine, she said. That puddle is way too small. The exasperated patient listened for a time then took a pitcher of water from the nightstand and poured the whole thing on the floor. He then looked at them and said, Is that a big enough puddle now for you guys to decide? Well, it was, and that was the end of the argument. It seems that people have a hard time accepting responsibility. Usually the proclivity of mankind is to blame it on someone else. This began in the Garden of Eden. After eating the fruit, Adam blamed Eve, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on, pun intended. Sorry about that. Uh, but unlike our hospital story, sometimes the fallout is bigger than just a puddle of water. In our story today, the result of David's line in the previous chapter is about to cause hundreds of completely innocent people and animals their very lives. So what do we do when sin has such massive consequences? We're going to see a good example of David taking responsibility for his sin this morning. And we're going to be spending the majority of our time on the final four verses, so don't get too excited as we quickly make our way through some of the previous ones. I've been told there is some type of sporting event on tonight that some of you want to watch, so I'll make sure you're at home in time for that. Personally, I don't follow such secular, nonsensical drivel 
but to each his own, I suppose. Anyway, verse 2 before I get struck by lightning. It says, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. There were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now we covered the everyone who was in distress and debt and discontent a bit last week. So let's look at the second half of verse 2. It reads, It says there were about 400 men with him. Now, these guys came to the cave because they knew they would find sympathy and not criticism. And they knew that broken men don't throw stones at other broken men. Perhaps these men were drawn to David because they saw a guy who didn't lose his faith when he had every reason to do so. They saw a faith that came alive in trouble, not one that disappeared in times of hardship. They came to him because they saw a man in whose convictions didn't fluctuate, like the weather. But you want to hear something amazing this morning. They came to David as a group of malcontents, but they did not stay that way. Eventually, we will learn these are the same exact guys who were transformed later into David's mighty men of valor. Listen now, First Chronicles 12.8 describes them. They were mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles on the mountaintops. Once they were in debt, discontented, and distressed, they had nothing to commend them but their desperate need. But we will see as they come to David, they will be shaped into a mighty army for his use. They looked at David for training. In a spiritual sense, the exact same thing happens to us when we step from one kingdom to the other. The moment we do that, Jesus assumes his divine right to direct and govern our lives. Like David's men, we too are in debt, distressed, and often discontented. But as we hang around the son of David, an amazing thing happens. We become like Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The Bible tells us we are being changed from one glory to an even greater glory. That's what happened with these guys. They were a ragtag group of renegades, but the more time they spent with David and beheld who he was, the more like David they became. But it wasn't an overnight process. It took years. Well, so too with us. It's easy to become discouraged in our spiritual growth when it often seems that our growth is barely incremental at best and totally non-existent at worst. But to the extent that we feed ourselves with spiritual things, we are growing. And as with physical growth, the more we feed ourselves, the bigger we grow. 
Sounds like an ad for Weight Watchers, doesn't it? But what else does this transformation of these men teach us? Perhaps that we shouldn't write off people as easily as we often do. Because you see, misfortune will cause you to meet misfits. But perhaps you will find that in a great many of them, they're just diamonds in the rough who just need the touch of the master jeweler to bring out their great worth. Let's try to view everyone we come across that way. Now, in verses 3 and 4, David asked the king of Moab to please protect his parents. Now, fleeing to Moab is what another Bethlehem family had done several generations before David. If you remember from our study in Ruth, Elimelech had taken his family to Moab during a time of famine in Israel. Because of this, Ruth the Moabitess is in the Bible story. The father of David, who would be the grandson of Ruth, was most likely the reason why the king of Moab allowed them to have asylum. It's also at this point that the prophet, tells, prophet Gad tells David, don't stay in the stronghold, but go back to the land of Judah. The prophet told him to return to the land of Judah. Now, the word Judah means praise. Maybe that's a word for someone this morning. Don't stay in the stronghold of sin and defeat, but go back to the land of praise. I've learned over the years, if you sit and sulk and moan and groan, you will become a mental mess. You will marinate in misery. And you can tell when people have marinated in misery. It has infused every aspect of their being. Conversation, outlook, and prospects for the future Everything in their life is negative. Don't stay in the stronghold. Now, the narrative now leaves David. We'll return to him at the end of the chapter. Before we do, we move north to Gibeah to see what Saul is doing. This is verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was standing in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all the servants standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. If I were writing 1 Samuel, verse 9 would begin with, Wah, wah, wah. This is another reason why God did not choose me to write the Bible. What it really says in verse 9 is, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So we see Saul here under a tree with a spear in his hand, probably ready to chuck it at some unsuspecting soul. But appearances of security are, however, an illusion, as we see that Saul is full of fear. Also, five times in verse 8, we see the word, me. Who was the person most important in Saul's life? Well, let's see. There's me, 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 and oh yeah, don't forget me. Now, David was attracted had attracted men who were willing to risk their life for him. But Saul had to use bribery and fear to keep his forces together. Most likely, those who had gathered to David at the cave of Adullam 
had no doubt suffered under the hand of King Saul, while those who stayed with Saul were his cronies who profited from his ways. But please take note of this this morning. Eventually, we have to choose which king we are going to serve. Listen to this quote. There may be many who claim to be Christians, however, who are trying to be in both camps at the same time. You are vague in your testimony, uncertain in your purpose for life, indefinite in spiritual conviction, shallow in spiritual experience. You desire to be quite sure that one day you will share in the Lord's reign, but you are not prepared to share in his rejection. You are not willing to leave the kingdom of the enemy and enter into the kingdom of God. What's that saying? Simply put, we cannot sit on the fence. Jesus himself said, you are either for me or you are against me. Which side are you on this morning? But back to our story. Saul does not sound as secure as he looks, does he? Someone has described this as the rantings and ravings of a desperate man. Now, there was no evidence whatsoever that his servants were contemplating any form of disloyalty. Saul, however, was in the grip of the fears that had nothing to do with facts. Now, in verse 9, Doeg tells Saul what he saw, but what he did not say was as important as what he did say. He did not mention that David had persuaded the priest to provide with him food and arms by using a story about being on a mission from Saul. In other words, Ahimelech had given these things to David in the mistaken belief that David was on a mission from the king. Now, David reflected on this moment concerning Doeg in Psalm 52. See if you think it sounds accurate. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. That about sums up Doeg, doesn't it? Verse 11, please. The king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear me now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Himelech, you and all of your father's house. The only comment I have on all of those verses is, Don't be surprised in life those times when you are completely innocent, but you still must sometimes suffer. That's just part of living in a fallen world, and I don't like it either. Verse 17 then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. 
consumed with paranoia and jealousy, Saul orders his servants to kill the priests because he thinks they have assisted David. Now, to their eternal credit, Saul's servants wisely and courageously refused to do this. We may remind us of the time earlier when Saul commanded the people to kill his son Jonathan for violating an oath, but once again, the people refused to obey him then also. Really, there are two kinds of people who don't amount to very much in life. The first group are those who cannot do what they are told. And the second group are those who can do nothing else. What do I mean? It's a dangerous thing to say, well, you know, he told me to, or she said I had to, and that's why I did that thing. Always remember that as a Christian, there is a higher authority of what anyone else may tell us to do. And anytime anyone tells you to do something contrary to the Scripture, even if that person is your best friend, your spouse, or even the government, we have to obey the Bible instead, regardless of what consequences that may bring. Verse 18, please. And the king said to Doag, You turn and kill the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also, Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep, with the edge of the sword. Saul, however, had one obedient hatchet man. He now turned to him, and Doeg was all but happy to respond. Now, when none of the Israelites obeyed, Doeg does what Saul says and more. He exterminates the whole village of Nob. Every man, woman, child, and animal. A whole town of people die. Most of them probably never even knowing why it happened. Now, Doeg exceeded the king's order of just the priests, but we hear, hear of no attempt of Saul trying to hold him back and no protest whatsoever from Saul about this wholesale slaughter. There was what but one survivor... Look at verse 20. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, though. Do not fear. For who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me... You will be safe. With bitter irony, Abiathar's name means my father remains. When in actuality, we know that that's not the case. It's deeply moving to see this man come to David with this terrible news. One of Ahimelech's son escapes and then finds David. Now, I would think David would be the last God that Ahimelech would want to see. After all, it was David's lie that had set in motion the events that would cause his whole family in the village to be murdered. But God's hand is seen even in this evil tragedy, because Abiathar will go on to become the priest in David's kingdom. And in this, it's as if God is putting together something that humanly would have been impossible to do. And maybe the same is true in your situation this morning. 
Maybe a relationship has been cut off to such a degree that it makes no sense whatsoever to ever think it could be put back together. But what you haven't factored into the equation is God. God can do things that man cannot. Now, David took responsibility for the slaughter of the priest, but he also took responsibility for caring for Abiathar and making sure that he was going to be safe. In verse 22, David does the thing we talked about at the very beginning this morning. He took responsibility for his actions. He says, I knew Doeg would tell Saul. In essence, I'm the one responsible for all of those innocent deaths. When David was faced with this sin, he had several choices. But ultimately, there's really only two options. He could either rationalize his sin or he could repent. He could have thought to himself, even if I had told him elect the truth, Saul would still have ordered him and the others to be killed. So it's not that big of a deal. It's really not my fault. I'll be honest with you this morning. I've done that in my life. I'm not proud of it, and I know it wasn't right, but I've done it. I've rationalized my sin. And my guess is that you've done that also. Even David is not totally immune from doing that in his life at times. But when David's heart came face to face with his own sin, his heart was to repent from it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to end up on a deathbed of regrets. And that requires repentance, not rationalization. The sad thing is the damage from David's sin cannot be undone. He is crushed because others have had to bear the consequences of his moral failings. My friends, you and I better learn this lesson and learn it well. We can't do wrong and get away with it. Our sin affects us and it affects others. Our choices will very often make us or break us. and They will also make or break those who are closest to us. Ask the victim of a crime if if the sin of other people affects them. Ask the parents who never bring their kids to church, never teach them about the Lord, and wonder when they grow up empty and alienated. Ask the alcoholic who doesn't think his drinking hurts anybody else. Look in the eyes of his wife and his kids and his friends, and you will see the pain and the suffering. Ask the husband or spouse whose wife or husband is unfaithful, whose heart is broken, and who finds it almost impossible to trust anybody else. Sometimes we are the Jonah that causes other people to be in storms. When we choose to cross the line between good and evil, someone will pay. We can be forgiven, but often we cannot erase the consequences. So if you are dangerously close to drifting to disobeying God this morning, let me warn you. Repent, turn around, and come back to the Lord. There are some things you do that cannot be undone. We have to be careful not just to read over these words and not realize the tremendous conviction and emotion that must have been behind them. This surely broke the tender heart of David. That's exactly what we should want as believers. We should want our sin to break our hearts. Do you remember that story in Luke 7 when Jesus entered into the house of Simon the Pharisee? Simon didn't kiss his guest or wash his feet 
both of which was expected in that culture. But a prostitute came in with an alabaster joy of ointment and washed his feet and dried them with her hair. Why? She was broken by her sin. But what about Simon? This guy was a Pharisee. What does that mean? Well, this is a guy who spent the first 12 years of his life memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Eventually, he will have memorized the entire Old Testament. Let that sink in for a moment. That's 39 books of the Bible. That means he can recite nearly 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. And yet at that very moment, he's looking directly across the table, and he doesn't even recognize the Messiah who has already came. Why? Because he has not been broken like the prostitute was. The thing I want us to realize is we are all broken. It's just some people don't realize it. So the bad news is I'm not okay and neither are you. We are badly broken. We're not gently used like the clothing requested from good, for goodwill. We're ripped, torn, and ragged. The good news is God can make the broken things whole. He takes the overlooked, the undervalued, the left out, the written off, the damaged and the destroyed, and then the Lord does what only the Lord can do. God loves to make the broken beautiful. In his book, Lord Break Me, William McDonald points out that in the physical world, broken things lose their value. They are thrown away. Things like glassware, dishes, and furniture. Flaws are fatal in the physical world. But in the spiritual world, just the reverse is true. Broken things are precious. Broken things reveal the, the power and beauty of God. For it is then that flaws open the chance for the grace of God to come in. Jeremiah the prophet was sent to the Lord to a potter's house to await further instructions. When he got there, he saw a potter toiling away at the wheel with water and clay mixing and revolving as the jar emerged. But the potter's fingers felt him at some delicate point, and he found himself holding a flawed jar, something no one would buy. As the prophet watched, the man pushed the clay back together and began molding it again, as seemed best to him, Jeremiah 18.4. Then Jeremiah received further instructions from the Lord. God says, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, you are in my hand, O Israel. It's such a beautiful image of God sitting at the wheel, looking down at a flawed piece of pottery, but refusing to toss it. The potter made another jar as seemed best to him. All the same clay, all the same cracks, but now made new. Everyone experiences loss. Everyone will mourn at some time or the other. That may go against your inner Joel Olstein, but it's true. But those who follow Christ will find out that their pain has not been wasted. There is with that a blessing that just seems illogical. Like David, sooner or later, we will stop running, usually when we ran out of places to run to. 
We finally let the tears come, and that's when we find the missing strength. But the twist is, it's not our strength at all. It's the power of God's arms wrapped around us. And when I finally come to the end of me, I'm then made whole. In closing, The Poseidon Adventure is a movie about an ocean liner who goes through a terrible storm. A wall of water crashes through the ballroom, and you see men in tuxes and women in evening gowns screaming and running for their lives. Amid all the confusion, the lights go out and the ship flips upside down. Now, there is enough air trapped to keep uh, the liner floating upside down, but the passengers by this time are in full panic, frantically trying to save their own lives. They're so confused, they begin climbing the stairs to the top deck. The problem is that deck is now 100 feet underwater. Getting to the top of the ship means drowning. The only survivors are those who challenge the old established logic of up and down. While others rush to their doom, these wiser passengers descend into the dark hull of the ship until they finally reach the bottom. And at the bottom of the ship, they find themselves at the surface of the ocean. Rescues hear them banging at the hull and then cut them free. You know, very much like that, the ship of this world has turned upside down. So what looks like up to us is really the way to destruction. And what seems like down to us is in actuality the way to salvation. The ways of God often seem upside down. But maybe the problem is we've spent so much of our lives looking at something upside down that it seems right side up to us. As wild as it sounds this morning, consider the possibility that the whole world is crazy and Jesus is the only one who got it right. Like that old Andre Kraut song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Now, if you've ever known that, or maybe you do know him, but you find yourself in a cave this morning, regardless of where you are, please see me or someone else and talk to us today. Father, you are the only way. I know that goes against a pluralistic society that we live in, but the truth is the truth, Lord. And we cling to that truth, thankful that there is a way. Lord, I pray that you would just drive that into our spirits today. Do something in us, Lord, that would make us different, that people would look at us and see a difference and then want to be like us, Lord, as we are like you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.